Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Is It Legal 2? A regular look at the legal system and you, a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farrah Fight. Farrah, I was talking to someone the other day about guardians for children, and they started talking about guardians for adults and other kinds of guardianships. There's even a kind of guardian that doesn't watch over people. We're going to talk today about all of that with Jason Jacoby, a Columbia attorney who specializes in elder law, estate administration, estate and business matters, among other things. Welcome to our show, Jason. Hi, it's good to be here. Jason, it seems to me that there are places for guardians throughout our lives and even after our lives, I guess, to some point. Is that a fair perception? Sure. I think that we could all use a little bit of help now and then. You know, in, in the kind of law that I do, we've got lots of people who occupy what you know, we call fiduciary roles. So you've got your personal representatives for after death and guardianships and conservators during life. Let's define the term guardian. So a guardian is, in essence, a person who's going to be appointed by a court to oversee the person of another individual. That means they're going to make things like medical decisions, decisions on where that person might live, those types of arrangements, who that person associates with, and those sorts of things. And then does that differ from a conservator? Yeah. You know, a lot of times you hear the term guardian and conservator, so a lot of times they're, they're done together. But a conservator is a person appointed by the court to manage another individual's financial affairs specifically. So dealing with their property, they have to enter into any contracts, those types of things. They don't handle the medical side. They don't handle the living arrangements. That's all the guardian. What kind of situations typically lead to a guardian being appointed? I, I think typically what we see is there's there's two primary ones. You usually are going to see uh, an, an individual who maybe had a developmental disability as a child who's now reached the age of majority and, and is going to need help handling their medical and, and, and living affairs. And so a lot of times what we'll do is we'll file a guardianship just before they turn 18 so that that's in place. So there's somebody there to take care of them once they reach that age of majority. The other situation that we end, that we occasionally end up with is the kind of more traumatic one where an adult has had some sort of you know serious injury and now has, due to that injury, can, can't handle their own affairs and they need to have somebody appointed to help them with that. Can I appoint my own guardian or is that done externally? So you... You can't appoint your own guardian per se. You can ask to have a guardian appointed for you. It's it's unusual, but it's it's allowed under the statute. Typically, it's going to be another individual who's petitioning the court to be appointed as a guardian for another person. If I have a power of attorney that I give to someone, is that kind of allowing a is that person kind of a guardian? It, yeah, you can make you can draw that distinction absolutely. Both the guardian and a person acting under a power of attorney have that same sort of fiduciary relationship and, and the duty to the person that they're that they are the agent for. The guardian typically will trump. There is a power of attorney in place. A guardian is has got greater authority because they are appointed by the court. But you you can absolutely look at. More specifically, a medical power of attorney would be closer to the guardianship, more analogous to guardianship, whereas a durable power of attorney for finances would be closer to conservatorship. Do you typically see family members who are seeking this for someone that they love or care about that they just think isn't able to care for themselves? I think that that's the most common scenario. Typically, people who are petitioning are going to either be parents, a lot of times it's siblings. You know, it's very rare that it's an unrelated individual. But it's, it's possible. You can, it can be an unrelated individual, but it, it's typically going to be relatives of the, of the person. You have to be incapacitated or disabled to get a guardian? 
That's correct. The court has to find that you have that you are in fact incapacitated or that you are in fact disabled before a guardian or a conservator is appointed. Can you contest that if you think that you don't fit in those categories? Sure. And the way that that's typically done is part of the way the guardianship and conservatorship statutes are how they work is once somebody files a petition, a attorney is automatically appointed to represent what the person who's going to be the subject of the guardianship or the conservatorship, they're known as the respondent. And that person, that, that attorney is going to meet with that person beforehand and discuss that with them. And if, if they think that that person is not in need of a guardian or a conservator, that's, that's what they'll report to the court. And if the court's not satisfied that the person is in fact incapacitated or disabled, the court's not going to grant the guardianship. So somebody doesn't lose any rights by having a guardian appointed for them, do they? No, they do. By default, basically, uh, an adjudication that somebody is legally incapacitated or disabled, typically they're stripped of, of most of their rights that, that you would typically think of. You know, they, they can't vote, they can't marry. Recently, and I just was on a panel regarding this, there's a Senate bill and that added uh, the ability to ask the court that even though the person has been adjudicated, incapacitated or disabled, that they are retaining that right to either vote, marry, or to drive a motor vehicle as long as they can pass the test. So that's something that's new, but typically they're stripped of, of most of the rights that you would think of. What kind of a test would you have to take? Would you? The driver's test. Okay. Yeah. And a voting test? No, no. The, the voting and, and marriage is, is just, you just ask for that. And again, depending on the evidence before the court, the court can put in their order that the person is allowed to retain those, those rights. For the driver's test, you do have to show the court that they, in fact, can pass the driver's exam. But in terms of voting or marriage, is this a, is a, a, is this a mental capacity issue? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the idea, that the, the person doesn't have the ability to make an informed decision for marriage or, or for voting. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of where that comes from. This sounds like a good time for a segment we call Legalese with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolf. Legalese, that means we ask Judge Wolf to translate the lawyer's language into common English. Judge? Legalese. For those more inclined to follow pop culture than to dig into the details of guardianship law, that would include me as well as many of you. I have two words to focus your attention on guardianship law. Brittany Spears. Yes, the amazingly successful singer, dancer, and former Mouseketeer has, for the last 15 years, had her personal life, finances, and career under the control of a guardianship in California, where such things are called conservatorships. It is the tale of a well-intentioned court proceeding that was, to be gentle, wildly overdone and, in my view, a shocking abuse of legal proceedings designed to help people in need. Britney Spears became ultra-famous with her first big hit recording in 1998 and was constantly in tabloid and celebrity gossip news after that, including ceaseless invasions of her person by paparazzi, those pesky people with cameras, jumping out from behind bushes to photograph the rich and the famous. Ms. Spears had a high-profile romance with fellow pop star and former Mouseketeer Justin Timberlake and a marriage to dancer Kevin Federline, had two children, and a rocky relationship with her family of origin. There followed a high-profile divorce and custody battle. In 2007, she shaved her head and assaulted an annoying photographer, one of those haunting paparazzi. This established her reputation as being, quote, crazy. Her lucrative career attracted various managers and helpers who were willing and able to help relieve her of her burdens, including the burden of having too much money. 
These public yet personal incidents and her so-called helpers, including members of her rather dysfunctional family, brought Ms. Spears into a legal proceeding at a hearing prearranged before a probate judge that lasted all of 10 minutes and resulted in a conservatorship, which we in Missouri, as I said, call a guardianship, that has lasted for 13 years, largely in secret until recently. One of the characters in this drama, for example, is a lawyer appointed as an advocate for Ms. Spears, who drew a salary of $520,000 a year, or about $100,000 more than the singer's annual living expenses. Her father and a second lawyer were appointed co-conservators and took over all decisions relating to her finances, her career, and even her personal life. The conservatorship was made permanent in 2008. She was even denied access to her own cell phone. But she kept working, performing, and making tens of millions of dollars. When Ms. Spears later attempted to hire a lawyer to get out of this court-ordered straitjacket, a judge ruled that she could not hire a lawyer because she was mentally incapable of making such a decision. In 2015, Ms. Spears told a probate court investigator that the conservatorship had become an oppressive and controlling tool against her and that she was sick of being taken advantage of. The investigator's report called for a pathway to independence and the eventual termination of the legal proceeding. But the conservatorship continued. At a hearing in 2021, Ms. Spears told the court that she was forced to go on tour and that when she resisted further confinement, she was given psych tests, which she failed, and was forced into rehab. In rehab, she was forced to go to meetings 10 hours a day for four months, and if she didn't cooperate, she wasn't allowed to see her kids or her boyfriend. In recent years, the conservatorship denied her her reproductive rights, having an IUD inserted in her, and denied her permission to marry. In 2021, the public, including many of her fans who had started a Free Britney movement, began to learn the details of her conservatorship, only a few of which I have recited here from a detailed report in the New Yorker magazine by writers Ronan Farrow and Gia Tolentino. Farrow, for those who follow celebrity culture, is the brilliant son of actress Mia Farrow and filmmaker Woody Allen, and is no stranger to the world of celebrity gossip. What may be astounding is that the variety of ways Miss Spears was denied her own life all took place under the control of a court as authorized by laws enacted for a good and useful purpose to help those who are mentally or physically unfit to care for themselves. The control exerted over Britney Spears was exercised by people who were armed with the authority granted by the court to manage the day-to-day life and career of the pop star. Guardianships are nearly always done for a good purpose, to care for those who are unable to manage their lives, their money, and seem to need the court's help just to be able to stay alive. The Britney Spears case shows these proceedings in their extreme form, where a proceeding designed to be helpful, even life-saving, can be used as an instrument of oppression and exploitation. Ms. Spears' case is likely to spur reports and investigations of similar misuses of the legal system. We Americans treasure our freedom to an extraordinary extent, and reports of intrusive guardianships are an important reminder that we in the legal system must be vigilant to guard against the misuse of the power the state grants us to do good. We the people give the legal system this power, but we must watch carefully how the legal system uses it. This is Mike Wolf speaking up for freedom. Legal ease. What are some scenarios, I know that you highlighted oftentimes those who might have a minor child who's getting ready to turn 18 that has a disability. That's a clear-cut scenario. But are there other scenarios that you often see where guardianships are pursued? 
So it kind of maybe like slightly less clear-cut cases. Yes. Yeah. yeah you know, you, you do have parents that will come in and they have kids who it's, it's hard to tell whether, you know, especially when you talk about the autism spectrum, they, they may have trouble interacting socially and it might cause them to act out or, you know, they were, they're refusing. One of the big ones is, you know, if the, if the child is refusing to take medications that they've been prescribed, it, it does get a little bit more difficult because they may present as being pretty okay. But then when you learn about the history, maybe there's there are definitely going to be some reasons that it might be helpful to have a court give somebody the authority to, to make them take the medications where, you know, once they're 18, otherwise that person wouldn't be able to enforce that. So Can that um, be really challenging for a family if it is a contested or I think so. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean obviously the, the contested ones are, are quite a bit more difficult. Whether it's the person contesting the fact that they need a guardian or a conservator or where you've got two people who are fighting over who should be the guardian or conservator, that always is going to make it more difficult. And, you know, it's especially difficult for that person who's at the center of it all. It's unfortunate to have to go to court and hear people arguing over what they think is best for you. And again, one of the things that I think some of the new law addresses is is that that person should have more of a voice in what happens to them. So I, I, I'm actually a fan of, of, of the new stuff, but I hear from older attorneys that there are some practical problems, but we'll see what happens. What, what kind of qualifications would I have to have to be a guardian? Very few. You have to be over 18. Typically, you have to show that you've never been convicted of a felony, that you're not a habitual drunkard, that you consent to be appointed. But as far as qualifications, it's really more of a do you have any disqualifying things generally again most siblings most parents are going to be qualified to be a guardian or conservator are there any liabilities to being a guardian or conservator not in your individual capacity and that's something that's sort of difficult to think about but a person serving as a guardian conservator is both themselves as an individual and themselves as a fiduciary you do have some liability in your fiduciary capacity. So you want to make sure that the decisions that you make are in the best interest of your ward. That's a person under guardianship or your protectee, which is a person under conservatorship. But typically your personal liability is is limited to things that you would expect. You know, if, if, if I have a ward that had a vehicle and I went and I was negligent and I drove that vehicle and I got in an accident, of course I'm going to be held personally liable for my own negligent conduct. But Typically, there's not going to be personal liability for guardians or conservators. Counties have uh, public administrators. Yeah. I don't know if cities do, but counties certainly do. Mm -hmm. Are they kind of guardians? That's one of their functions. They are guardians and conservators typically of last resort. So if there's not anyone else that's available and the court finds that somebody does need a guardian or conservator, the public administrator is the, is the final go-to. Can you have the guardian who actually didn't know you beforehand? Can someone be appointed other than a public administrator to end up being a guardian? I, I can't imagine that that would ever happen. You know, it's one of those things that I, I couldn't say off the top of my head that it's never ever occurred, but I can't imagine that that would ever be the case. Again, be, partly because it's usually that other individual who is petitioning and the court is going to look at whether or not that person is an appropriate individual, you know, qualifications aside, is that person going to be appropriate to be a guardian or conservator for this person? And a complete and total stranger, I, I would think, in particular, if there was somebody else willing to do it, wouldn't typically be considered an appropriate individual. 
Is it a judge who decides or can a jury be involved and asked to decide? It's a judicial proceeding. I don't think that there's a a mechanism for ever appointing a jury in a a guardianship. And what is the the responsibility or the duty of the judge when deciding it? Is it what's in the best interest of the individual or what's in the best interest of the state or the community? It's what's in the best interest of the individual and the judge's discretion. Mm -hmm. Does the guardian have the right to commit somebody to a nursing home? Yeah. One of the, in fact, placement's usually one of the things that's discussed in proceedings. There's a determination of what the, the best place for a person would be. Typically, that's going to be part of a medical affidavit as well, which is typically required when you when you file these. You have to get a doctor to say, yes, I believe this person is incapacitated, and I believe that this is the most appropriate placement for them. If the doctor says that the most appropriate placement, or if you can show with other evidence that the most appropriate placement would be be in a care facility, then that's the, the court can order that. Then can the guardian sell that person's property? Yes. They just recently have amended the law to require notice to the ward or protectee that their proper or to the protectee that their property is being sold, that their real property and tangible personal property is being sold. They do not have to have notice of intangible things being sold. So if they have stocks and bonds, they don't necessarily have to be noticed for that. But yes, in particular, you know, if there's property that's could generate some some money for the estate that's not doing anything else, a lot of times you petition the court to sell that property and then you can use that for medical care or something like that if you're also the guardian. What additional duties other than ensuring financial stability and medical decisions, what other duties do guardians have? I mean, those are the primary ones. Conservators in particular are going to have a little bit extra. One of the things a guardian does, they have to file an annual report with the court. It's pretty much their only major court-related duty. It's now been expanded to include a lot more things. It used to kind of be a one or two-page form. It's, it's, it's a little bit more now. Basically saying, how often are you seeing the person? You know, what are you doing to make sure that they're, they're safe and healthy? You know, do you have a plan for how that's going to take place over the next year? Those sorts of things. Conservators typically also have to file an annual settlement. So when a conservatorship is a conservator's appointed, they basically they'll create a conservator account for that estate, and every year you have to show the court that you've managed the money, and you basically have to say, you know, this money came in, this money came out, and this is what we spent on it. For a lot of purchases, you have to ask the court's permission and petition the court to approve it before it's done. Particularly, you know, things that are more expensive, but those filing requirements are the primary court-related duties. Otherwise, you're just Basically, yeah, you're trying to manage the order protectees, either health or their finances, in in the, in the best in their best interest. I know you practice in the areas of elder law and estate planning. As we said on the show before, that unfortunately life is terminal, and so <laughs> how should we plan? It should guardianships be something that we also think about in our end of life planning or estate planning decisions? You, or so. It's something to consider. The goal typically is to avoid them at all costs. You know, there's always going to be situations where you have to have somebody appointed, but there are a lot of other ways that you can do similar things without having to go that far. As Bob mentioned earlier, you know, powers of attorney. As long as the person is capable of, you know, they're not going to be a, a harm to themselves if they're left in a, in a certain place, if they're not being watched all the time or something like that. Sometimes those things are going to be all that's needed. 
those are the sorts of things we try to push people towards first. It's usually only in kind of more serious circumstances that we really need to look at guardians and conservators. We've spent our time talking about adult guardians, but there are guardians for children too. Right. What kind of circumstances do you get into when children need guardians? For guardians for children, typically that's going to be more along the lines of a lot of times it's going to be grandparents. If mom and dad are, are not around or out of the picture, guardianship can sometimes be used to get legal authority to make the decisions on behalf of the minor child. That's kind of the case that we usually see for that type of thing. Conservators for minors occur as well. Usually when I see that, it's because somebody's left maybe a sizable inheritance to a minor, and we want court oversight as to how that money is managed until that person becomes an adult. I wanted to ask about the difference for guardianships or pursuing adoption for minors. Is there a plus or minus or pro or con of each? If it's a grandparent situation where they're wanting guardianship or I guess it could be extended family beyond grandparents, but what, what's the best approach there? You know, that's something that I've not dealt with a lot. Adoption is going to be, a, a, you know, that's actually a family law, more of a family law matter. As far as which one, this is me thinking about why one is over the other. Adoption requires, I think, more because typically for an adoption to occur, you have to have either parents voluntarily given up their parental rights or they've been terminated by a court for some reason or another or the parents are gone and then a court can order that their rights are terminated. That I don't believe is the same. It's not the case for guardianships. Typically, I think if you can show that the parents kind of are out of the picture and that you need the legal authority to do things, that you can get the guardianship over, over a minor. As far as guardianships or conservatorships go, can someone, can they be terminated? Can yep. you be fired from being one? Oh yeah, you absolutely can. If there's any sort of showing that somebody's either abusing a ward or mismanaging the funds or you know appropriating some uh, conservators, their, their protectees' funds for themselves, absolutely, they can be removed. And they can be subject, that's another, that's one of the other times they can can be subject to personal liability from the conservatorship or the guardianship estate. So they can, they yeah, they, they can be removed. It doesn't happen a lot. I mean, usually it never gets that far. Usually if somebody's going to be that type of person, it's caught before the guardianship is, they're, they're appointed, but it does happen. How, sure. do you, how do you catch people? Well, in particular, for it, it, it's much harder for guardianships. For conservatorships, since they do have those extra requirements, usually there's not a really easy way for them to fabricate a year's worth of accounting in a way that a court's not going to catch. So a lot of times what you see is the mismanagement of the funds comes up when, when the accounting's prepared. Or, you know, they don't have, no, I don't have any receipts and I don't have anything like that. They have to keep those things. So that's, that's one of those things that, that the court's going to look at. And if they're not doing the settlements the way they're supposed to be doing them, that, that could be grounds for removal. Law frequently is, is changing or, or morphing or being modified as time goes by and we have more experience with all kinds of issues. Is this, is this a fairly static situation in the law? It, it had been for quite some time. Just Again, just recently, the law was kind of... From a standpoint of how many changes were made was kind of overhauled. Um, a lot of that was just updating things that needed to be updated, like uh, including gender neutrality and, and things like that. Because the last time I think it was updated was 40 years ago, something, oh, wow. something to that extent, at least updated significantly. And you know, I think that our, our understanding 
of the way certain mental and cognitive conditions actually affect people has grown. And some of the new changes, I believe, are reflective of that. The idea that you know, just because a person can't make 99 out of 100 decisions doesn't mean that we shouldn't listen to them that one out of 100 times that they, they know what they want. The idea that we should be doing things, not necessarily always what we think is in their best interest, but more what would they want? You know, how would they choose because it's their life? And I think that that's something that's really important. And I hope that it keeps changing in that direction. I just wanted to ask in general, if someone is thinking about seeking a guardianship, how long does this process typically take? It's it's typically pretty quick. If there's not any sort of contesting, usually if we can get our medical affidavits back quickly, petition to appointment is around a month, month and a half. Um, usually once the petition is verified and everything's been filed, the court sets a hearing date within two or three weeks, and then the person's usually appointed at that court hearing. It can go pretty quickly. And is there any advice that you give to clients who come in and sit down and say that they're thinking about pursuing a guardianship? The first thing that we do is we ask, could this be done some other way? I think that that's something that I would say to other attorneys is before you go to that, you know, that somebody might come in thinking they want a guardianship, but what you really want to do can be accomplished in a, in a much less intrusive court-intensive procedure, and, and I think that that's always going to be the starting point before you before you start to look at, no, we really do need to file a guardianship or we really need to file a conservatorship. Jason, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for having me. To understand guardianships and the protections they offer us throughout our lives. Great. We appreciate that very much, and thank you for being with us on this edition of Is It Legal 2, a special production of the Missouri Bar. There are some resources you might want to check, whether you're involved in criminal proceedings or whether you have other legal questions. That's right, at MissouriLawyersHelp.org. That's MissouriLawyersHelp.org. You can find an array of information on various legal topics, including our probate law resource guide, which includes a section on guardianships. Thank you for being here today with us, Jason. Tony Simons, the Missouri Bar's Citizenship Education Director, is here to share more. Today's topic emphasizes the relevance of one of the most important provisions in the Constitution. The 14th Amendment's provision that no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. A House of Representatives special committee once noted, the typical ward has fewer rights than the typical convicted felon. He can no longer receive money or pay his bills. By appointing a guardian, the court entrusts to someone else the power to choose where he will live, what medical treatment he will get, and in rare cases, when he will die. It is, in one short sentence, the most punitive civil penalty that can be levied against an American citizen. Similarly, the West Virginia Supreme Court wrote, it is axiomatic that a declaration of incompetency and the resulting appointment of a guardian to oversee an individual's affairs may affect constitutionally guaranteed liberty interests. The guardian dictates the ward's residence, the ward's freedom to travel is curtailed, and the ward's legal relationship with others is limited. Attorneys Susan Haynes and John Campbell argued that the potential impact of guardianship necessitated a vigilant application of the Constitution, writing that, 
the individual interests implicated in both guardianships and conservatorships would intuitively appear to be of the most fundamental importance, thereby justifying the application of the broadest due process procedures. What does the due process clause of the 14th Amendment require of government when it seeks to deprive people of their rights in a non-criminal setting? The most complete statement of the specific protections required to be provided by government came in the landmark case of Goldberg versus Kelly. These protections include an individual must receive timely and adequate notice of the government's intention to take action against the individual. The government must disclose its evidence to the individual. The individual must be given the opportunity to be heard at a meaningful time and in a meaningful manner. The individual must have the opportunity to present evidence, to call witnesses, and to confront adverse witnesses. The individual must have the right to be represented by an attorney. The individual must be able to appear before an impartial decision maker. The decision maker's conclusions must be based upon evidence disclosed at the hearing, and the decision maker must state the reasons for the final decision. An examination of the Missouri Revised Statutes dealing with the procedure required in a guardianship hearing reveals that our state law is in line with the requirements articulated by the United States Supreme Court in Goldberg. In fact, Some aspects of Missouri law go beyond what is required by the Supreme Court. The Missouri statute provides, if the court finds the respondent to be in some degree incapacitated or disabled, the court, in determining the degree of supervision necessary, shall not restrict his personal liberty or his freedom to manage his financial resources to any greater extent than is necessary to protect his person and his financial resources. This least restrictive means provision is one that was not mandated by the court in Goldberg. As this provision indicates, it is not just in the appointment of a guardian that due process principles are relevant. Due process also comes into play with the manner in which guardians exercise their authority. A case from our neighboring state of Illinois illustrates this point. In February of 1996, the guardian of a minor filed a petition in the circuit court requesting that her ward undergo electroconvulsive therapy. Court-appointed counsel for the ward requested an examination by an independent psychiatrist, but the request was denied. At the conclusion of the hearing, the court entered an order authorizing the requested electroconvulsive therapy. Why did the court authorize such an extreme measure with a minimum of legal procedure? The reason was that the law enacted by the Illinois legislature authorized such a process. The minor's attorneys appealed, arguing that the law relied upon violated the due process clause and that the judge's order was thus invalid. 
The appellate court of Illinois agreed, writing, All the statute provides is that a court must approve the guardian's consent. Even assuming the court must come to an independent determination that the procedure involved is in the ward's best interest, the statute provides insufficient protections to the ward. It does not specify the level of evidence by which anything must be proved, nor for that matter, does it state what must be proved, except that the guardian has given informed consent and believes the services are in the ward's best interest. It does not require input from any healthcare professional. It provides no limit on the length of time any service may be forced on the ward. It does not require proof that the ward is unable to make a rational choice for himself. It does not even provide the fundamental requirement of due process, an opportunity to be heard in a meaningful time and in a meaningful manner. Clearly, this was a court that was going to hold the legislature to the highest standards of due process of law. It is undeniable that there is a need to have guardianships in our system of justice. It is equally undeniable that guardianship takes us into a realm in which individual rights are impacted. Once again, we enter an area in which easy answers are not to be found, in which competing but vital interests must be recognized and balanced. As is so frequently the case with our Constitution, careful lines must be drawn to protect both the rights of the individual and the aspirations of an altruistic society. We must never forget that the Constitution generally and the Due Process Clause specifically stand for the idea that while government may be well-intentioned, It does not get to do whatever it wants, however it wants. That is the foundation of our constitutional system. Nothing further, Your Honor. The more you know about the laws that impact our daily lives, the better decisions you'll be able to make about your life, your family, and your finances. I'm Farah Fight. And I'm Bob Pretty. Join us for another episode of the Missouri Bars podcast, Is It Legal 2? A regular look at our legal system and you.